one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is a very special end-of-the-year episode, Talking Space episode 916. My name is Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Seasons greetings, everyone, and Sawyer, I can't wait to light this one up because we've been talking about this one now for weeks, and... I have been just so gosh darn excited about hearing hearing about this adventure. I I can't wait, and I hope uh, the audience is ready for this, too. Oh, I hope they're ready for it as well. Uh, welcome as well, Kat Robison. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure, as always, to have you with us. And we are joined today by a very special guest. Uh, this man is a regular reporter down at the Kennedy Space Center, whom I get the honor and privilege to cover launches with. He is a spaceflight contributor for Wired Magazine, and I'm proud to call him my friend. Please welcome Robin Siemengal to the show tonight. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Thanks for having me, Sawyer. And uh, to the entire team, I'm really happy to be here and excited to tell the story of Sawyer and I's adventure in the heartland of Texas, uh, <laughs> where the food will definitely uh, make you want to go on a diet afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, that is the truth. <laughs> Readjusting to normal food after being in Texas for a week was quite entertaining. I never thought and I'd crave a salad so much. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually ate vegetables when I returned to Cape Canaveral. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. <laughs> yeah. It was a very strange moment. <laughs> Oh, boy. But anyway, uh, a little bit of backstory as to why Robin and I were down there. Uh, you may recall from a few episodes back, we discussed at CRS-12, we met the amazing family of Lorna and Jimmy Herring and about their son, Rhett, and the Rhett Revolution. In case you weren't there for that episode, uh, their son unfortunately died in an ATV accident, and uh, SpaceX was kind enough to get a sticker of theirs on board the Falcon 9 rocket that brought the CRS-12 mission and the Dragon capsule up. And that sticker returned on the first stage when it landed back at landing zone one. That was then presented to the family while we were with them in Waco, McGregor, and that area of central Texas. We were invited down there by KWTX, that's CBS Channel 10, down there in Waco. And they set up this whole program where I got to go around and, with the Herrings, talk to about 20,000 school kids there and uh, share messages of being kind and being brave. And... Uh, Robin, you tagged along and uh, got to join in on that also. Yeah, it was an extraordinary thing. Um, you have all these uh, school children from diverse backgrounds, different social classes, and you get to, you know, we really got to see their perspective on things like bullying. And think even some students we talked to about space exploration because in McGregor, Texas, 
SpaceX has an enormous um, rocket testing and engine testing facility. So it was interesting to see the dynamic between the folks who live in the area and that testing facility uh, when it comes to space exploration, but also taking that message of hope that space provides and kind of digesting it and distilling it for these these kids. And I think uh, we got our message across, and uh, Sawyer really helped drive that message home. Well, thank you. I mean, that was my goal was to help spread that message of kindness with an amazing family and, again, to spread the story of space exploration as well especially with it happening in their backyard with the testing there and i think that's also our goal here on this show uh if this is your first time listening with it being the holidays uh to try and just get people interested and excited about space and fill them in on the stuff they may not know about one of the cooler moments was when we brought i think it was a, a, a stadium that hold thousands of kids. We filled the stadium about three quarters way full, and we showed rocket launches and landings. That was part of the video package that we were taking from town to town, but it was extraordinary seeing some of the reactions to that rocket landing. And I know even though those rockets are tested a few miles away from where these kids live, that was the first time they were seeing anything like that, even though it was on video. That's the other thing is you don't realize that you think that in a space town like mcgregor texas where you know spacex is one of their bigger companies there that people would really know about it and that they really didn't especially you know in the surrounding towns around mcgregor which you know some of them were 10 15 30 minute drives from them and yet it was very rural in most of the area a lot of farmland like you mentioned a lot of socioeconomic differences between the different cities and as a result, they didn't get to see much of the stuff that we here get to go down and see all the time when we cover launches, and it's fascinating. When, one thing that we did do after we left each school, we left behind a giant cardboard printout of a Falcon 9 rocket, a SpaceX rocket. And I hope those schools keep them around, and I hope it does drive some conversation uh, in those schools because, those, like I said, those rockets are – are tested and everyone in the town hears them. It's that's kind of a thing in the te- in McGregor. Um, people hear the the testing and and the engines and the and the firings of the rockets. So it's I hope those the conversations we had about rockets sticks in those students' minds. Exactly. When we went to Waco to talk about you know be kind, be brave, which was the hashtag behind the Red Revolution, um, I never expected it to also be not just teaching them about kindness, but teaching them about space. Because when we planned our trip there, we did plan on covering something for Talking Space. And uh, we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But I wanted to bring up the Ret Revolution first, because first off, it's a fantastic cause. And it's something we want to support and highly recommend looking them up, uh, adding them on Facebook. If you have a spare nickel or two to donate to the cause. But uh, it was just eye-opening that we could share so much about space in addition to kindness and honestly in some instances the two go hand in hand of you know being kind to being brave and the bravery and everything that goes into space flight um it was the mayor uh the jimmy herring of uh the mayor of mcgregor texas um he kind of drove the point home i think it was halfway through a tour when he said that you know when you're bullied or when something bad happens in your life you get burned a little and you pick yourself back up and you keep going. And he held a part, the part of the Falcon 9 rocket 
And he compared it to that. He said, look, this Falcon 9 rocket went to space, came back to Earth with some burns on it, but it stood up high and it's ready to fly again. And I think uh, the mayor really drove the two points together when he said that. And uh, we joked that the mayor should <laughs> run for public office uh, after he said that. But, uh, yeah, it's that was a point that he drove home kind of unexpectedly. It's a fascinating uh, allegory there, Robin, you know, having the, the Falcon 9 first stage being, you know, sort of an example of, uh, of you know, standing tall against adversity. That is, that, right. I, I'm, I'm just, that blows me away. The mayor is a very well, a thoughtful and, and well-spoken man. And uh, I should point out that even though he's the mayor of McGregor, Texas, he's a lawyer in Waco, Texas. The, the being mayor is, is only a part-time job, though. He's a very smart individual. Extremely. Both him and his wife, Lorna, are very smart people. Yeah, and uh, Lorna is very well-spoken, very well-written and very thoughtful human being. She's very sweet. Yeah, she's a fantastic writer also and has a blog, and there was a great piece that she wrote about our meeting as well, and uh, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. And I can also, I'm going to recommend to everyone listening to Talking Space episode 909 to hear our original interview with the Herrings, along with hearing the launch itself from uh, CRS-12, because that, that, was that a good mission launch. was fantastic, and yeah. the story was made that launch even more special gentlemen if if uh if i'm i may if if people were interested in finding out more about the the uh the revolution and the organization is there a website or any kind of contact they might want to go ahead and look at they're working on getting a website fully up and running and that's retrevolution.org but otherwise uh the best place is the ret revolution facebook page where they post updates and pictures and uh, more information is on there as well. Yeah, and we should link to that also on our show notes. Absolutely. And uh, also, you can help by going and spreading acts of kindness and bravery and uh, use the hashtags be kind and be brave, which was uh, what we encouraged all the kids in Central Texas to do, to do unprovoked acts of kindness and to be brave and to stand up in the face of adversity and just to be good people. So in addition to uh, our trip to Waco, we figured we're in Texas, and uh, neither Robin nor I had actually ever been to the Johnson Space Center. And so we reached out to public affairs there, and Brandy Dean over at Johnson Space Center Public Affairs Office helped us out spectacularly with setting up some fantastic interviews. So let's start off with commercial crew. We wanted to see uh, what they were working on there with commercial crew training because we knew it was happening and preparations for that. And so uh, we got a tour of one of their training buildings there with astronaut Mike Fink, who, uh, if you recall, most recently flew on STS-134, the final flight of Space Shuttle Endeavor, and now is working with the commercial crew programs, uh, both Boeing and SpaceX, to help with astronaut training. So Robin, what was your thoughts as we were walking through with Mike and a few of the other engineers and trainers through that building before we go into specifics? Well, first things first, from my perspective, um, as you pointed out, I'm part of the, the Kennedy Space Center press pool, and I have been for a few years, and I, and I have not been to Houston. So all I've ever seen of Starliner is the pressure vessel, the mock-up, in the in the facility at Kennedy Space Center. So for me to see the folks working on simulators in front of computers and a bustling, you know, uh, situation like that 
really made uh, the commercial crew program real for me, uh, more real than it's been, uh, you know, for me seeing at Cape Canaveral. But uh, it was exciting to see uh, some of the the mock-ups, too. They were very detailed. They were state-of-the-art. And there was multiple ones, uh, which shows that they're attacking various things uh, simultaneously. And given that flights are coming up in early 2019, accrued flights, it seems that they should be amping up operations, especially behind-the-scenes operations, mission control operations. SpaceX, you know, the Dragon, is gonna, a lot of that's going to be automated, but teams on the ground and, you know, crews are going to have to be fully trained on how to pilot the vehicles and troubleshoot problems. So seeing that stuff was very real to me and pretty cool. That's a good word for it. Real. Uh, Again, uh, same thing. We all typically cover Kennedy Space Center and uh, I've seen the same pressure vessels and mock-ups that you have, but not the actual software, the training, what it looks like inside the capsule, what the crew members are going to actually see. Which, unfortunately, we can't share pictures of what it actually looks like with you because of privacy reasons. I can tell you that it made me claustrophobic a little bit. It means <laughs> I'm not really prepared for space travel, but it was very detailed and, and very much uh, fully user-friendly. User-friendly is a very, very good way to put it. It was uh, A lot of it was simplified, and they were even saying that uh, what they made for the crew inside is a little simpler than what the controllers will actually be seeing. They're just giving them all the pertinent information while the ground crew has more access to uh, all the specifics in case something goes wrong or if they need to uh, to check something. And while we were there, we were walking through and they were showing us some of the shuttle memorabilia there and how they're working on one of the rooms to actually become the Orion trainer. Um, but they were doing a Starliner docking test while we were there, they had just gotten some software updates, and uh, they were working on it in... Uh, go ahead and tell them what the room was called. It's called The Bridge. And the reason... <laughs> yes. Great. And there are... It's funny. They asked us... They asked Sawyer and I to guess what the room was. And we, you know, we, we almost got there. It was on the tip of our tongues. But then we realized that there was Star Trek uh, designs and insignias everywhere. And there was an actual little map of the room that was called a bridge. And um, it, it, they and they followed that up by telling us they had at least one Kobayashi Maru simulation, which was pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Kobayashi Maru, it is an unwinnable scenario um, that Kirk faced in his earlier days. Um, and then we saw it again in the Star Trek reboot. But that yes. it's an unwinnable scenario. That is supposed to teach you about fear in the uh, in facing imminent death. And I'm sure every new ASCAN goes through that. And I'm sure one of them is going to go ahead and reprogram the simulation so it was possible to rescue right. the capsule. Right, and then he will get <laughs> he will get temporarily suspended from Starfleet. <laughs> in fact, I actually uh, have a clip of uh, astronaut Mike Fink and some of the trainers talking about how they go through that training process and. Uh, what that training actually helps prepare them for. So uh, this was 
recorded inside the bridge, which sounds so cool to say. We used to have a little a mini crew briefing room, a debriefing room. And then we had a, and then we had another room about to that other column that was for when we did integrated sims with the Mission Control Center and, and then uh, Huntsville or wherever. And that was another room. And then even further was what he said was the motion-based instructor room. So we actually took four rooms along this side of the building and turned it into two big rooms. This being one, and then the one you saw at the other end of the hall. So what's the difference now between the two of them? Well, they're the same function. Like you said, they're instructor, instructor areas where you have a, a, a team lead that choreographs all the, uh, the training that takes place, and then, and then these different locations uh, here are subject matter experts for, for different uh, you know, components or, or parts of the vehicle, you might say. Yeah. So we've actually, we actually had uh, like three instructor rooms along here with a briefing room, and we turned... Uh, uh, we, we just made them bigger into two big instructor rooms. And then the one across the hall, I was just showing Mike, that's under construction, is actually bigger than this. And, and it's for the Orion program when it comes on board. It's, it's, it's going to have, instead of this having nine consoles along here, we're going to have uh, 13 over there. And it's going to act similar to how you had it for shuttle? Yeah, well, it's every, all the kind of training we do is just like the shuttle, the station does the same thing. You have a, uh, a lead uh, that, that, that makes sure every, all the training syllabuses and everything like that are, are done for a training session. And then you have the actual instructors that, that put in the malfunctions and, and control the systems and stuff for the training exercise. Training, right? I've been a trainee for a long time. In fact, I should put that on my, <laughs> on my name tag here. Is, um, we really appreciate it, not at the very moment, but uh, but. Uh, in the, in the big picture, we definitely appreciate our instructors giving us really hard things, right? We have to solve them. You know, sometimes they even give us a Kobayashi Maru, right? It's unsolvable, <laughs> but uh, and, and but it's really you hack the software and fi fix it anyway. Uh, <laughs> there no, are members who would be capable of that, but so far they that. haven't tried that because it tends to be frowned upon. Yes, we Kobayashi. <laughs> so, but uh, we do get some really in intense simulations and. Uh, um, Russians have a saying, uh, but it goes something like, the harder you train, the easier it is to, 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 to fight. In this case, it is easier it is to fly. Tejelinia uchenia leko bayu. So that's how they say it. So it's really in, in easy in Russian. But here it's the same thing, right? So and and what we hope is to get a cream puff mission where nothing ever goes wrong. Perfect mission. Um, yeah. Perfect mission. Yeah. And, and, and there's no people in Boeing and all over the country that are working really hard to make sure we have that. But nature will always throw you something. And this is the hero team that actually makes sure we're ready for the unexpected, the unknown unknowns. And it happens. Every mission, there's there, there's always something. Right. Space. And yeah. yeah I'm sure you've had ex experience where you know you saw something in the sim and popped up. Or is there any surprises that threw at you when you're actually in orbit compared to your training? Or? Uh, the the only surprises that I had uh, in, in all of my training was uh, how much it, um, how few malfunctions we had on on board. Really? Because you you can get here that you you, know, you you come out of a shuttle sim and you're sweating. You yeah. know, for an ascent, it's only nine minutes to go into orbit, yeah. and you come back and say, "Oh my gosh!" And there are eight things that happen. And on our our flight, the only thing uh, on the STS-134, the only thing that went wrong was the the uh, there was a uh, one of the digits of the LED clock was off, so I couldn't tell if it was a zero or an eight. <laughs> but other 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 missions, uh, things have happened. They they lost an electrical bus, one out of three. And and the crew was calm, cool, and collected because they'd seen things like that and worse in The Sims. Mm. So these these guys are the heroes to make sure we're ready for whatever life throws at us, and then some.
Yeah, Sawyer, if I could just interject uh, something here. I recall from, oh, good Lord, I think it was SDS-26, just as we were getting ready to return to flight, uh, CBS News had had a uh, special on about the uh, the program, and they followed the ascent team around trying to go ahead and also deal with the, sim- the simulation supervisors and how relentless they were as far as uh, uh, throwing curveballs at the, uh, the mission controllers and at the astronauts just to see how they would react and also to see if, you know, how well training was progressing. Every, everybody ha- has said the real missions are a piece of cake compared to how vicious the sim soups can be. And I'm going under the pretext, too, that during the upcoming missions that will be that will be flying with commercial crew, either be being the Boeing uh, CST-100 or the SpaceX Dragon, they're going to be the same way. They're going to be just as relentless, just as, you know, inflicting a lot of pain on both the uh, the, the astronauts and uh, and the mission controllers. But in the same token, too, it really, really goes ahead and sharpens the spear, if you will. So. When you're in a real situation and just something a little minor happens, you're like, nah, you know, we know what to do. And your training just kind of kicks in automatically because you, you've you've been through, you know, you've been through the fires, so to speak, and you know how to react. I think that's the whole overlaying philosophy. I have to agree with that. Um, given where we're coming from with shuttle era, um, there was two disasters, and that's something that we'll never forget and something that kind of still weighs on NASA. As crew flights uh, go over to the commercial industry, it's going to be a lot more stringent processes and sa- safety regulations. And obviously, we've seen delays happen over the last couple of years pushing commercial crew flights a few months at a time um, because of a lot of oversight. And I think it's better safe than sorry, in my opinion. Exactly. And again, that's why there were so many trainers. Like there was nine stations, as you heard in there, of people working on different aspects of it and just learning it themselves, which that was the other interesting thing is the controllers in there were working a lot on automation and they were in there doing it just themselves with no astronauts, although they were linked into mission control a bit. But it was just fascinating to see them in their element working on learning it themselves so they can throw all this stuff at the astronauts once they deal with it on their own. I want to go back to something, Robin, that you said as far as the interior being a little claustrophobic. I know Boeing was trying to go ahead and use some lighting tricks, if you will. I think they were trying to use this this kind of blue lighting in there to try to trick yes. the eye in in believing that that the the spacecraft in and around them, around the, the crew, was actually bigger than it really was. Was that lighting activated at all in, in the simulator? No, uh, this was strictly nuts and bolts in terms of flight and and docking and things like that. They focused more on the the meat and bones of of flight rather than the the ambiance of the atmosphere in the simulators. But I'm sure they'll get to that. I mean, they're going to want to um, get a, a read on mental health of the astronauts and things like that once they have a new flight atmosphere. Um, some of those things were done uh, during the shuttle era and Apollo era, um, and NASA needs to know how its crew is going to react to certain spaces in space. Yeah, and and I just I just thought too that that they were going to try to go ahead and simulate the environment as best they possibly could and as authentically as they possibly could, but 
Um, I guess that's still a work in progress. I mean, they've got they've got to work within a budget too. Right. So creating a full scale uh, simulator, I don't see that ever happening. Um, I see uh, training and things like that um, done in separate facilities, and, and I think we'll give them a good encapsulation of what to expect. In fact, uh, I think that actually leads in perfectly. Besides seeing the individual training room where you know they were learning the software, which Fun fact, updates every two or three months uh, with major updates. There are little things here and there, but every two or three months, they're relooking at it again with all these updates. But as we went on from there, we moved into their sort of full-scale trainer. So it's not, like we mentioned, it doesn't have all of the fancy things with it. It's mainly just you got a little plastic mock-up on the outside. Uh, you step in, go up a few steps, and you're in sort of the cockpit area where they've got a few chairs, they've got all the screens and monitors, kind of like what the astronauts would actually be seeing outside. And so uh, I'm going to play a clip from when we were inside there talking about just basically what you were asking about, how it's kind of broken down into what's necessary for training as opposed to, you know, functionality and comfort. You can fit more than two. Like I said, we have our, our heavily mocked up ones, but the the goal for this vehicle is we're only going to have two people who are experts to fly it. The right. other two will be more passengers. Um, well, there you go. There's the jets firing. Which gives us a lot of uh, good flexibility, right? So that um, two of the people don't need to study super hard for the spacecraft. They can study for the space walks and the science program and everything else that we that are long lead items for the International Space Station. And uh, the, the, the pilot and commander for the Starliner uh, can focus on getting the crew up and down safely, as well as you know, their science and everything. But that way we have a, a well-balanced team. And it's, not, it's uh, not too different than what we do with the Soyuz. The Soyuz has its only way up and down the space station. We have three people, and they're, they're, we have a, a, what we call a commander and a flight engineer, but it's pretty much pilot and co-pilot. And, uh, and then the third person has, uh, doesn't have to study for the Soyuz as hard and can study for other things. So it's, uh, it, it's uh, very similar except that we have four people instead of three. And having that extra person aboard the International Space Station is really going to increase our output for science. Right. So it's, uh, it's a very much a win-win situation all along. Is that part of the timeline to push it to seven people as part of the commercial crew will affect that timeline? Yes, very, very much so. And uh, everybody has to have a, 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 a lifeboat to be able to come back down if there's an emergency. Right. So even though we could probably switch around so uses enough to get sneak, you know, to get up seven, seven or eight people on board, they wouldn't have lifeboats to come back. So we really have to wait for the commercial. We frown on them on the way home. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. not, not so much. So yeah, uh, besides the fact that they frown on not giving them a way home, uh, the trainer only had two seats as opposed to the normal four that it will fit so that the pilot and co-pilot can do their training. And again, the rest of it was just kind of rolly chairs. (laughs) Also, I should point out the noise that you heard in the background that is not microphone noise. That was the sound of thrusters firing because as we were in there, uh, they were doing an automated docking test in front of us, which was pretty cool. I was going to ask about that. <laughs> I was because I heard this. I'm like, hmm, that sounds interesting. So, yeah, sorry. Thanks for clarifying that. I appreciate it. Yeah. And just to set the mood for that simulator, it was a bit dark inside. And it did was a little like I said, it was claustrophobic. Um, funny enough that uh, even though it was very tiny in, in, in there, 
that wasn't the simulator that I hit my head in. It was the next one, right, Sawyer? Yes. <laughs> it was the one that was in, in an open room with nothing <laughs> overhead. Just monitors. I somehow managed to hit my head on the monitors. <laughs> so I made it's Sawyer true. take a photo of me there. And then when I wasn't satisfied with the photo, I made him take it again. It's, isn't that always the case? You're better yeah. off just taking yeah. You're just I better off them, sticking like, to what you got. <laughs> yeah, you know. That's the problem with working with another photographer yeah. and another reporter. And NASA did warn us about, you know, what we could take photos of. And you obviously can't take photos of the simulator, uh, the front of it. So we were allowed to take side, sideways photos and things like that, which was cool. At least they let us take any photos at all, which was more than I thought they were going to. But again, inside that yeah. inside that trainer was just the the full scale mock up one. You know, the there is manual control options. Like they had a joystick that you could kind of raise or lower like an armrest in a car. Uh but they really stressed the automation of it. And again, they kind of messed up the simulator while we were in it trying to reset yes, it. They kind of broke it. But Yeah, it broke the simulator. But that was kind of at the end of our that leg of the tour. Um and I want to say, just from a media perspective, um, Sawyer and I were totally shocked and surprised that we were able to get this far and, and do as much as we did up until this point. And um, going back to the whole photos thing, obviously at Kennedy, you know, we're, we're excited to be there. So we take photos and we take selfies and things like that. But the public affairs official, uh, what was her name again, Sawyer? Brandy Dean. Right. She was incredibly sweet. And she was always the one who was like, Oh, let me get a photo of you guys. And it was just great. Uh, they, NASA was just enthusiastic to have us there seeing all this new commercial crew stuff. NASA's obviously really excited about it and getting the word out about it. Exactly. And Mike Fink, the astronaut, he was also fantastic. And he's been working back and forth with these programs going between Hawthorne uh, for SpaceX right. and Boeing. He and said he was at SpaceX just a few days before. Exactly. And that's when we asked about the importance of... Uh, automation and uh why that's so important so the space shuttle we had to do completely uh, manually right. it was it was a miracle that i mean space shuttle was not designed to dock to space stations but we figured it out it right. was really it was it was pretty uh, ingenious how we ended up doing that uh, and uh so but for these spacecraft, like the Soyuz, we fully as crew expect them to be automated. Right, right. <laughs> but if they don't, if something goes wrong, we can actually save the mission or, or expedite things. And we do that all the time with the Soyuz. You know, one out of three uh, Soyuz missions that needs a little bit of human intervention. And that's what you know, the humans can add to the, to the story of, of actually you know, helping things but along. humans are creative. And yes. Resourceful. And, and, and by working all together, we can ensure the mission happens. Right. So when you were in Hawthorne, does SpaceX like stress the automation of the Dragon? Because I know they can pilot, it can pilot itself, and it can pilot from Hawthorne. But when you're here, do they are they training the crew to use the controls on Dragon? Yes. Okay. Uh, we uh, not only do we insist, but it's the uh, and there's a major power down. That was me. I took the don't let me near space. No, but uh, not only that, but uh, that's a NASA requirement at the very top level for creating yeah. things for humans. That humans so, can actually pilot the spacecraft, right? Right. That, 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 that way we have a, a chance to save the day as, as we yeah. want to. Computers can't do that. <laughs> I am positive that the uh, the astronaut corps said, yeah, we want the ability to override if we, we sense something not 
copacetic going on because that that whole argument you know stems all the way back from the mercury days <laughs> you know the astronauts wanted a, a level of uh, you know they wanted the level of control of their spacecraft they didn't want to go ahead and throw it over to, to a computer they didn't want to be a passenger they actually wanted to pilot the vehicle and i think that that's you know you've got to strike a bargain somewhere but i think too we're we're talking about you know both machine and human being kind of working collaboratively in this instance. At least that's what I'm getting from the conversation. Yeah, I mean, they're they're all test pilots, and that's what Mike was talking about. And uh, the four crew members that have been selected right now for commercial crew also all came from test pilot programs. And uh, he talked about that. And, and he basically said those four crew members are being trained to be able to fly on all the different vehicles. Now, one thing he did say that was also interesting was that after these first four crew members, most likely each crew member who is forced to fly, so a commander or a pilot as opposed to a mission specialist, all of them will be assigned to a specific vehicle. So right now, these four crew members can float between Dragon and between uh, Starliner, but in the future, it will be you'll either be Crew Dragon or you'll be Starliner if you're actually flying it. That's really interesting to hear that they would do that. I mean, obviously, it makes sense because from what you're telling me, that the training process even and probably will continue even as, as the spacecraft develop, that whenever there's a software update or there's an upload, you know, there's a whole new training process. So it's interesting to, to hear how that will happen. I think it's funny that SpaceX made their Dragon so automated considering Elon's hatred towards robots. <laughs> but um, I do appreciate the the bottom line um, when it comes to having control of a spacecraft is having control of a spacecraft. Humans are intuitive, resourceful. Um, you know, we have the creative uh, ability to solve any kind of problem, um, work under stress and work under pressure. Um, we can't make let ourselves become dependent on machines and we can't be dependent and set a precedent for machine dependency and space exploration um, as humans expand their presence in the solar system. I think setting a precedent um, now with commercial crew vehicles is important. I think that's a really great point because, you know, no matter how advanced our AIs become, at this point, you know, that's no substitution for a human who can make decisions that are outside of sort of a, a line of command or a string of commands in a system. Thus my argument against autonomous vehicles, but that's another story altogether. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that there's a place for, for <laughs> autonomous vehicles that allow for human control. I don't think anyone is saying that we don't. It's great if we can dock and take care of some of these things anonymously, but that astronauts would have the ability to take over if they needed to is very important. My 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 deal was with the autonomous car, but that that was that's another argument for another day. And uh, I think I see where you're going with the you know the the, the autonomous car perspective on that. My perspective is is a little bit more simpler. It's when we got cellular phones, we stopped remembering phone numbers. Um, I don't want generations of astronauts that come over the years to be less and less trained on the basics of spaceflight, orbital dynamics, and just, you know, that, that test pilot nature of astronauts, that's something that should keep going throughout the generations, and we shouldn't change that education. 
um, as more and more humans go to space, I think it's important to preserve that that knowledge and and that instruction, especially the technical knowledge. I don't want it to get watered down throughout the generations, you know, because of automation. You, you hit it right on the head. That's where I was coming from. I'm glad we see eye to eye on that. Yeah. Um, I hope that that's something that NASA, SpaceX, Boeing, or whoever um, keeps the quality of the education of the astronauts high. We've seen other sectors of society fall by the wayside because of that kind of thing, whether it's uh, you know banking or, or construction or infrastructure. Um, sometimes that can take a toll with uh, less and less training and less and less money for that kind of training. So I hope that NASA keeps that at a premium. Exactly. I mean, how many of us can read a map now? Exactly. <laughs> I know, you know, there's there's people who can't even read a compass. I mean, scary. So, it's a sad yeah. era that we live in. Well, and you know, yeah. and we think that this is a new thing, but I studied abroad in 2009 in Botswana in Southern Africa, and I went on a road trip with someone after when we had a break, and she was just, mm, I think, maybe five or six years younger than me. And I mean, this is in 2009. Um, and I'm in my 30s now, and she couldn't read a map, and there was no other way to navigate around where we were in Africa unless you could read a map. So not only did I have to do all the driving because she couldn't drive a stick shift, I also had to do all the navigating because she never learned to read a map. I'm surprised. I don't. When I think about it now, I don't know how humans got around before map, before Google Maps or Map. Like, how did people get around? I have no idea. Um, uh, but that's that's the thing. It's like that's something that was only a few years ago. We've got this technology, but it's. Uh, or, or like you said, we don't know how to read maps anymore. This we're losing basic knowledge, and I think if our future is in space, um, we have to come up with ways to preserve the uh, cumulative knowledge that we've had since the Apollo era and in spaceflight and breaking the sound barrier and things like that. We need to keep our pilots sharp and keep our people well trained so they can train others. And if nothing else, we have to prepare for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> and, and an alien invasion yes that is the first that we have to now that ufos studies are a thing now yeah, oh, UFOs don't are get a thing me started. I, I won't don't worry don't, but please. um <laughs> we'll save that for a new story in 2018 yeah please uh, but anyway i think that whole conversation leads in perfectly to the last room that they brought us to in that building and, and that was the uh ptt which is a personal trainer so basically, uh, there's the full-scale mock-up with all that and the craziness. And then there's this little room with just a chair and a bunch of screens, most of which are the same, a few that you might not see in the actual vehicle, but all the same buttons, switches on the touch screens that you could use, a little joystick, and um, a chance for astronauts to get some individual practice and... Uh, I mean, they explained the reason behind it perfectly, and I'll let them explain it, and then Robin, you and I can probably go into a little more detail. We don't want to have the most expensive, most flight-like facilities for every bit of training. We'd like to work your way up to it. So we build a couple of smaller trainers that are better than just flat screens um, that we call proof hard task trainers. And that's what we're going to go look at. But the idea is you work your way up from just looking at regular computer screens to the hard task trainer, and then when you've graduated from that, you'll come in here. Or if this if this guy's being used for a major event, 
any crew member, any flight controller can go book one of these guys and they can go fly scenarios by themselves. And that part is really, um, uh, I, uh, the, my fellow astronauts and I really like that ability to come in and, and study things for yourself, right? So that right. way you can, can re you, know, you, you put together the, what the instructors have taught you and then you get a chance to get the muscle memory of pushing buttons. You make a lot of mistakes when it's not so embarrassing. And uh, after a while, you get it all figured out so that you can have a chance to maybe get a, a, a small nod of approval from your instructor the next time it's, uh, you're in training. So again, it's the idea that if an astronaut wants to just go train on something or a flight controller wants to train on something, they can just go in on their own and not have the most expensive fancy thing. Or say they're doing a full sim and you still want to train, you can train. This goes back to the idea of a stripped-down facility, you know, that's economical um, and like you said, kind of gives an astronaut an, some independence in their training. Um, I like the idea that it is sort of like an extreme gamers setup. There's like five or six screens and a, a pretty big joystick and a really cool chair. Um, but I, I like the independence of it. And I think it's important to have something that's accessible at all times. Um, just at the basic level, it's great to have more than one simulator. Um, and just there's plenty of reasons for it. And I think having it stripped down to something that's very specific, some, uh, you know, whether you're, you're looking at navigational controls or pitches or something like that, you need a, a facility like this, even though it's just a room with a couple of screens, um, it can really make the difference in your training. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Robin. I mean, shoot, I know pilots that have uh, quite elaborate setups and they've got their own little flight simulator. You know, they've got something like X-Plane going on their computer. And right. they have like four or five screens in front of them. And literally, that's how they keep their skills sharp. Yeah. 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 The fact that you don't really need a motion-based simulator anymore. Because they were saying that now that shuttle's over and you don't need to worry about flying so much or asset now that it's back to a capsule... You don't need a full motion-based simulator anymore, so you can strip it down to its simplest components. And the other thing is there's many strings, as they called it. This is much easier simulator to bring up than old school, so, right. so even I can do it. And uh, you can bring it up, you can run through your scenario, you can actually pause it or run it from up here, so once you've got it set up, you can actually do some controlling from up there. Um, but yeah, the idea is the... Obviously, this is a less expensive yeah, than that one, the right. big cockpit, so you want to give as many people the opportunity to get in here and uh, I mean, the but all, all, all the controls and buttons there are simulated here digitally. Yeah, we have six yeah. simulation strings, Okay. and you can connect them to the flat panels mm. like this. You can connect them to the crew PTTs. You can connect them to the BMS, which is the big cockpit, okay. and you need one of those six to drive anything. Right. So, for example... They're running on string four in there. When you guys were out in the BMS, I was running you on string six. When I tried to move to string five, I honked up string five. So, and then Alan, you're probably on what? Two, oh, one. He's on string one. So you have to have that basic simulation and then you hook up whatever specific assets to it you need to accomplish your objectives. So like we said, for the simpler classes, They'll just work off of the flat screens, okay. and then for the more complex, you know, not 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 only the crews, but the the people who are telling them what switches to flip and all that kind of stuff. They need to be able to tell to call up to Mike. That's you know upper right. The panels have names, and they need to be able to remember in their mind, 
you know, yeah. sometimes you have to make a very quick call. I need this switch in this position, and it helps to be able to call up the panel number. So our flight controllers will spend a little bit of time in here just making sure what that they can understand the crew if they're asking questions about locations of items. That's not even so much redundancy as it is just, you know, <laughs> ease of access. I was going to say also there, there, there's got to be some sort of flexibility elements there too, no? How so? Well, where you could go ahead and paint in different scenarios and things like that, right? Right, yeah, it's a, it's a user-friendly interface, and it's something that it seems to conserve every level. Um, maybe an astronaut is just starting off their simulator training, or someone may be a few months into it. I think that the the user interface is good for managing those levels. Well, there's a lot of buttons on that, and again, all the important ones, it's not every single switch or button or thing that you'll need. And it also has some additional screens that you might not normally see, so you can kind of get a visual perspective of where the capsule is in relation to the station. Because again, when we were at the the smaller trainer, they were also in, uh, instead of an automated docking, they were in an automated undocking simulation for us. And you could still hear the thrusters firing, but there was a little monitor that kind of gave a graphical representation uh, of what the of where the Starliner would be in relation to the station as it's backing away and its little cone and again things that you might not see in the actual sim but important things for training so it may not have everything and it may have things that the actual one doesn't but it was a super helpful little room and, and again it, it's a room not much bigger than say a normal room you might find in your house it wasn't very big but it was enough to get the full vibe yeah I, that's why i hit my head on it because the room <laughs> was not very big it wasn't for any other reason of course not. <laughs> we totally didn't drive four hours to get there. You know, we, 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 drove, we drove four hours to get there, spent four hours there, and then drove four hours back. So if there's anyone out there who questions our, our nerdum when it comes to space, <laughs> just tell them that. And that was after three days of talking to 20,000 school kids, too. That was three, yeah, and three full work days with kids. <laughs> Yes. And travel all and the travel. way from Florida to Texas in <laughs> yeah. the other days. So, yeah. And by the way, we yeah, we flew in a um, what I like to call a tuna can from... Yes. Uh, what, wait, we were at Dallas Airport, right, sir? Yes, we went from where I am in Tallahassee to Dallas, and then Dallas to Waco Regional. And I drove from Cape Canaveral to Tallahassee to meet Sawyer. So wow. <laughs> that was almost five hours. But yeah, so we made it to Johnson, and the simulators were definitely worth the trip. Gotta say that. Exactly. It was really cool. And again, we were standing also in part of it on hallowed grounds of where the shuttle motion-based simulator right. used to be, which is now a Texas A&M. Right. But and, and, it, and with NASA, as always, you go in there and you'll see new things like the Boeing Starliner simulator. And you'll see a lot of old stuff just hanging around. Old computers, old equipment. Um there was an Armageddon poster from the movie just hanging out on the floor at Houston <laughs> with Bruce Willis's face on it. So, you know, that Kennedy's kind of the same way, but I, I was surprised that Johnson had similarities to Kennedy in that, in that aspect. That is a mixture of old and new. Um, a lot of the stuff from the old programs with new, you know, the newer program stuff kind of getting shoved in there. Right. I mean, they were still removing stuff from the Apollo trainer room to make room for the Orion one. And there was asbestos warning signs everywhere. And exactly. At the what same I mean. time. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. The whole hodgepodge of stuff going on in there. That, 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 wow. I'm just, I'm pinching myself here. Just hearing this thing. I'm just picturing what it must be like to be inside there right now. 
unreal is the only word I could think of. I hate to break the news to your listeners. Uh, we will never be getting a tour of the dra- the Dragon Simulator uh, <laughs> at SpaceX. Um, I, I, I didn't think you would be. <laughs> I've been covering SpaceX for three years, and I can tell you right now that's never going to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not going to go there. Let's not. I will say that we did attempt to uh, go and get a tour of the McGregor facility for spacex as well but unfortunately we're not able to get access but we did get to go outside the gate yeah we went outside the gate we we had a pretty long lens with us a 300 millimeter (laughs) we took some photos and we left so and i have a feeling we'll be getting a call from elon now after he hears this. oh good lord i'm just remembering our oa4 experience sawyer that's all (laughs) oh yeah that that was uh that's a whole nother story yeah i need to mention that spacex for the revolution tour that we were doing around Central Texas. SpaceX not only provided that piece of the Falcon 9 uh, to the family, which, by the way, will be on display at Rhett's Middle School in McGregor forever. They're donating it to, like, school to be on display indefinitely. Wow. And um, SpaceX also donated about a little over 10,000 T-shirts for us to give to students. Oh, that was um, sweet. Which, yeah, and they were they were really great quality T-shirts. They had the SpaceX logo branded on them with Rhett Revolution and the Be Kind, Be Brave hashtag. Uh, oh, SpaceX that's great. Pro- yeah, they provided that um, along with the piece of the rocket and, and, and stuff like that. So they, they pitched in some money and some support. Obviously, they had the hair, uh, Jimmy and, and Lorna um at cape canaveral as spacex's guests when they launched that sticker on the falcon 9 so they've been part of that process and as much as they could be as a private company um they actually pitched in quite a bit well bravo to them for for doing that at least as far as a corporation is concerned they're trying to be a good corporate neighbor as you said they've got a footprint in mcgregor they have donated millions to the local community when they when they first signed their lease they made a substantial uh a gift of a financial gift to the to the local communities when they moved there and they brought a lot of high paying jobs to mcgregor yeah we saw a lot of um people wearing spacex shirts oh, yeah. everywhere the, we went throughout the area SpaceX mm-hmm. employees yeah and um and this information comes from the local station we were working with um and they they tell us how many people work there um what they've done for the community and they made sure to let me know because i'm primarily a spacex reporter right now but Julie, who was one of the folks that one of the reporters who came to Kate, she said, you know what, Robin, they don't even let me into McGregor and I'm famous <laughs> around here. <laughs> so, you know, it's I, I didn't Sawyer and I didn't didn't uh, we did. We weren't offended that we couldn't go on to McGregor. They've never actually let any journalist on onto that facility for proprietary reasons. But we got to be nearby. So that was cool. But uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they and, are, they're and, amazing. And SpaceX had a an explosion at the facility just a week before. Yeah, so, right. Um, that that lessened our chances of getting on property drastically. Yes, <laughs> but yes, a huge shout out to SpaceX for helping with the uh, Red Revolution. But after we were at the training facility there, uh, we then moved on to the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, which, if you don't know the Johnson Space Center, which we didn't. Uh, it turns out that the Neutral Buoyancy Lab is a good 10-minute drive or so at least from the main part of the Johnson Space Center itself. 
uh, right next to the Air Force Base. Yeah, quite a few twists and turns to get there. Sawyer and I were in our own rented vehicle, our luxurious rented vehicle, I'll add. And um, it was nice. <laughs> we, uh, the NASA PAO, drove with us, and she directed us uh, to to the buoyancy lab, and it was quite a ways away. The campus area of Johnson is pretty huge. And obviously we drove around a bit even afterwards. There's a SpaceX building here, a Northrop building there, a Jacobs Engineering building here. All the streets are named after different space things. So it's a giant, gigantic campus. It really is. uh, The campus itself is big, and the uh, Neutral Buoyancy Lab is also really, really big. It's Okay, just imagine a pool that has to hold the International Space Station. That's all you need to know. Because that's basically what it literally is, right, Sawyer? It, it it does. It's not necessarily connected in the exact same way that the station yeah, is. It's close but, enough. But every single element is in there. The entire length of the truss, which holds all the solar panels and everything, is in there. And you know what else was in there? Two Japanese astronauts when Sawyer and I arrived. So that was really cool. There was actually two astronauts training in the pool with... Um, about half a dozen divers waiting at the end of the pool in their gear uh, for the astronauts and going down below, helping them out. There was a couple of those divers had cameras. The astronauts have cameras attached. So while Sawyer and I were standing at the edge of the pool, a little bit too close than NASA would have liked, um, <laughs> we could you know, kind of see the activity in the, in the pool. And right above us is a monitor showing a pretty clear picture of exactly what is going on underwater. Yep, and you could also see the bubbles from, you know, all the breathing apparatuses and the tubes that were following them around. You could basically always spot where the astronauts were, even if you couldn't necessarily see them exactly. And we were just walking around, and divers were coming up and saying hi to us, and we were just chatting with them. And We got to walk around the entire pool, which was really cool. Yeah, basically there's a yellow line, and they just said, don't step over the yellow line. Which, if you're a New Yorker who's ridden the subway, yeah. you know, you're, <laughs> a, you're a habitual line stepper like me. So I had to be asked uh, at least once to uh, not get so close to the pool and fall in there, which would not have been good. At least it was only really once, but, <laughs> but hey, if you took another step past that, you'd be swimming. Yeah, so. yeah, which, uh, yeah. So anyway, they took us upstairs. There's two levels. There's the floor level where the pool is. They took us upstairs for a better view where you can actually see the massive space station mock-up that's submerged. It's pretty, I don't know, it's overwhelming in a, a little bit. But that was cool. They had a little a little tiny mission control office up there for stuff going downstairs, going on downstairs. But the buoyancy lab is, I couldn't believe how incredible it was. And I should point out a few things in addition to that. One is that NASA now doesn't, have the entire pool they share it with uh contractors that rent it out and uh do other types of underwater training in it and uh in addition to that and in addition to having the entire iss and you know some planes and helicopters and things in it they also had an entire orion capsule back there too just hanging out in the pool and i'm guessing i'm guessing they submerge it here and there for those kinds of tests uh, I'm not sh- really sure if astronauts interact with it underwater, but it definitely seemed active and just there, ready to be submerged and moved across the, the pool. 
and they can drop the capsule too above the entire thing was a, a giant crane also right so they could pick up the capsule and do like recovery testing with it also i was surprised to see orion in there but then again you you know i i routinely run into orion mock-ups all over the place especially at kennedy you were mentioning all, all the monitors and all that and i uh, and i've been at at the nbl once back in 2010 but we weren't on the floor we were only allowed up in that uh, that ancillary room it, you had mentioned too that the 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 two uh, japanese astronauts had cameras on on them uh, is that for going ahead and you know analyzing the the steps that they were taking to make sure that they were following the script to the letter and I'm I'm guessing that that's that's strictly for you know use for training purposes and so on. I can't be 100%. I was I think sir I was the one who said there might have been cameras on the astronauts. I can't be 100% sure if those cameras were fully attached to the divers that were accompanying them or if they I can had... tell you for 100% certain that uh, I know I asked about it, mm -hmm. and they were not actually on the astronauts that's themselves. What I thought. There were other yeah. divers that were yeah. filming them. Yeah, but. that's what I thought because I, I knew that because I was thinking about the monitor, and I was thinking, you know, it was so there was so much activity going on down there, it was hard to tell. But yeah, uh, Sawyer's right on this one. It was definitely the divers because, like, you know, when the astronauts are down there, I guess they want them to have as you know, the the right amount of weight um, when going down there. I guess a heavy camera or. Uh, something would cause a lot of extra to go down there with them. So it would make sense that the divers have the cameras. And for you folks, by the way, listening at home, I, I know you, you you both were trying to convey the size of, of the actual pool. Picture this. The the ISS is from end to end is just a little bit uh, bigger than a football field. And from what you're, you're describing, it sounds to me like this was almost like maybe the 90-yard line mark is is how big this pool was because you said it's it's not quite there but it can fit the entire truss that sounds about right right yeah i'd say that's uh that's fair i i remember they gave us i think it's like 200 by 100 by 40 feet is the measurements i recall them mentioning something like that yeah and and sawyer you had mentioned too some other folks um uh renting out i recall during the end of the shuttle era uh, they were looking at using the the NBL for you know, rescue operations and things like that, and I think local fire departments too have gone ahead and 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 police departments as well have used the NBL to uh, to perform their own rescue training. The, one of the reasons why you you probably saw some helicopters in the background and so on. I know some of these things are submerged, and in the event that there is a you know a helicopter crash or something like that, the training I believe is involved in in rescuing folks out of you know out of these vehicles i, I know at least uh, a couple of the uh, first responders have been using using that facility for that i think it's smart um it's a great taxpayer funded resource for public use if firefighters police officers emergency rescue personnel need to use the mbl uh i don't think astronauts are training there every day so why not? That was the whole point, that we're trying to go ahead and make make sure that the facility was being used to the best of its ability. And I just remembered as uh, a shuttle was winding down, they were, they were trying to think of new ways of using it during the downtime, if you will. You know, while we were still trying to get our, our act together, trying to figure out what we were going to do next. And, uh, and, and lo and behold, I, I know that, was, that, that option was on the table, and I believe it was, uh, was heavily used for that. Yeah. And there was a bunch of different people that were able to rent it out. And again, there were like parts of helicopters and things there, but it's a really cool place. And there is so much to see there. Again, one of my favorite things was 
up at the top this uh, mural that they had painted. Uh, it was kind of like um, it was based on Da Vinci. Yeah. Ah, okay. It was painted by a former diver, and um, I found that out from Nicole astronaut Nicole Stott. But it's a fantastic uh, drawing, and we'll add that with some of the other pictures of all of this in the show notes. Before we leave the NBL, one other question: Did they go through any kind of what what a typical training protocol was for 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 a crew going to the ISS? As far as uh, as far as an EVA is concerned, how long it would take to say train for one EVA, if you will? Well, we arrived in the middle, I guess, in the middle of training. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know when those two astronauts went down there. The official told us that there was training happening right right as soon as we arrived. They, there was people in there training, so they must train for a few hours at a time, at least. Yeah, I, I was the the point I was getting at. Ultimately, for instance, from you know EVA setup you know, planning and so on, you know, soup to nuts from, from training the astronauts to planning the EVA and so on. Did they give any kind of inkling in how long that, that takes? I was too excited about the pool. (laughs) Sorry, did did you ask? I was, I was coming up with ways to fall in the pool. So, Hey, the The other thing is while we were there, there was no one really to interview. So we didn't exactly get questions answered. This was kind of a uh, a cream on the pie was, you know, this yeah. tour, All right. which was, uh, yeah, awesome. I'm with you. I'm with you. Total nerd out. <laughs> exactly. Indeed. So then from there, we went to Building 9, which, from what we understand, is the really, really cool building. Yeah. Uh, besides Mission Control. It's, the, v- it's, it's the VAB of Johnson Space Center, for sure. That's a very good way to put it. That is the mock-up facility in which they have an entire mock-up of every single module the International Space Station... Even Beam. Uh, even Bigelow... Even Air, the Beam module. Even Bigelow Airspace Beam, which has been extended to three years aboard the space station. So there was that. They had uh, all of the rovers they've been using for lunar rover testing. You may have seen videos of it. They were there. They had a robot arm. They had for shuttle docking. There was a whole actual shuttle docking ring. Uh, they had... An entire Sarge, I believe, which is one of the solar alpha rotary joints. Wow. That's on board the space station. They had the Soyuz. They had a whole Soyuz, yeah, with the um, with the service module and everything. Holy wow. So if you want to hear all about our experience inside that building, including an interview with an astronaut currently helping with Orion training and one of the heads of the Orion program, you're going to have to tune in to part two of our Johnson Space Center special. But for right now, that will bring part one to its conclusion. But I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here for this fantastic Christmas, New Year, end of year special. So thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sori. And I just want to go ahead and say uh, a shout out again to everybody over at the Johnson Space Flight Center and to Brandy Dean for hosting uh, you two knuckleheads over there and putting up <laughs> with you. Troublemakers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Understatement. Um, also, just to point out, Mark Raderman couldn't be here with us. He's over uh, dealing with uh, his uh, first robotics team, and we wish them well in the next campaign. And I also want to go ahead and thank Podbean for the honor of being their podcast of the week for this Christmas week. Uh, we've been with them now for about eight years. And again, thank you, Podbean, for that. I 
really do appreciate it. Also, get uh, emails, too, periodically from folks that are listening to us on Podbean and listening to us via the Podbean player. So if you just signed up with us again, my sincere thank yous. And as always, thanks to Astronomy FM for their continued support. But also, again, thanks to you folks that go ahead and tune in to us every every two weeks to hear about what's going on with your space program and uh thank you so much for making this part of your uh, your podcasting listening habits and uh again season's greetings to everybody listening and thanks very much and sawyer robin bang up job great stuff and and thanks for sharing it with us today i really do appreciate it was that a joke because i hit my head <laughs> not at all thank you as well for joining us cat robinson it was an absolute pleasure as always, and Robin will have to talk. Maybe we can do something from IAC next year. Yes, we're yeah. I mean, let's definitely we might as well. We'll be in Germany. Let's go find Lockheed Martin. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. And I just want to uh, wish everyone joy during this festive season, uh, and hope that everyone gets to spend time with the people whom they care and love about. And I am blessed and happy and lucky as always to get to spend time with the crew of Talking Space. Um, and I am very excited to to just see this year come to a close and to see what's happening in the coming year for Talking Space. So thanks, Sawyer and Jean and Robin and Mark. Uh, even though you're not here, I got to be a little bit of you today with my color commentary. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. And again, thank you so much for joining us, Robin Simigal, who is the uh, Spaceflight contributor over at Wired Magazine. Thank you. And of course, thank you for listening, whether this is your first time, this is your first year, or whether you've been with us for the last nine seasons. I want to thank you so much for joining us for our end of the year special here. I hope everyone enjoys their holidays. Also, again, don't miss part two coming out next week. We hope you will join us for that. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.